Welcome once again to Replacement Level Morality. My name's Joseph. And my name's Andrew. You know what's great, Andrew? You know what's fantastic? No. America. America is great. And I know that's an ice cold take to open a political podcast with, but I have um, been attracted to a lot of discourse around the concept of America as an empire and that um, a growing consensus of people that I think are accurately describing America as an empire, but are, are assigning it these characteristics of negativity that it does not, it does not deserve. And I, I think that our incredibly privileged position in, in history in this, in this moment is blinding so many people to the reality that the United States is without a doubt the most benevolent empire ever to exist on this planet. No question, no quarter. It's the best empire that's ever existed in terms of total happiness globally. What say you to this take, sir? I want to come to bat for my boys in Persia who really just wanted you to pay your tribute and left you alone. Like they were, uh, they're, they're near and dear to my heart. They were just out to make a buck. They, they did some good roads, uh, but they did have slavery. So probably worse than the U S that covers most of previous empires. <laughs> it does. It does. Unfortunately <laughs> tear down a lot of options. No, I think there's a lot to this. And I think one of the things that we strive for here at Replacement Level Morality is to be an incredibly historically literate podcast. Uh, we What we want to do is put America as an empire in the context of other empires. And I know this is your topic, but my my go-to example right now is Afghanistan. The British Empire would have trivially occupied Afghanistan for all eternity with the level of resources that we were putting in towards the end of the war. It was a negligible fraction of our GDP. It was less than a dozen casualties per year. The British Empire would have maintained that indefinitely. In America, we didn't want flag-draped coffins. We didn't want to be blowing up a bunch of hospitals and weddings for no reason. And so we got out. That, that was incredibly positive. That was something that no other empire in history would have done. They would have just said, oh, we own this now. This is ours. This is the 51st state. You're absolutely correct. And part of that historic literacy, because we felt like that was something that's missing from a lot of the shows we listen to, right? And a lot of the discourse that we watch. It's why we were drawn to try and capture the conversations that we have in this forum, because... So much of the hot take machine that people tune into just decides to ignore so much of the history that is built around human decision making through thousands of years of experience, right? Doesn't matter. You go you go back to the beginning of writing, the ability to write down the things that are happening. There are empires. They organize themselves in such a way to take advantage of structures so they can have more goods and have more access to the benefits of social interaction with other human beings in a way where you're kind of protecting your downside by having things like laws and a, a system and enforcement and then 
this means that you, you do have to expand your territory. Like all of these things, they just, they are a natural part of our decision to civilize ourselves. And there's no real putting that genie back in the bottle at this point. So you're always going to have people who are going to fill these, these power vacuums. Like there is no world where the United States is no longer the preeminent power on the globe and suddenly utopia breaks out and no one ever tries to be the top dog anymore. That's not happening. There always is going to have to be a top dog or someone who's willing to fight to get there. Because the rewards for being top dog are extraordinary. They're massive. Like your people get to live in the greatest luxury. You get to decide how things go for everyone. And that means you personally can profit tremendously. It means your people can profit tremendously at the expense of others. And not just positive some, but like we're not being invaded right now. And other countries are. It's not even thinkable that someone would invade us. That is something that I'm incredibly grateful for when you hear about some of the stress that other people are going to. Like Protecting your people is job one of a government. And when you're the top dog in a globalized system, that happens really well. So there's always going to be an empire. And your point about the British Empire is perfect to me because... It's an example of essentially the predecessor empire to us. Really? You know, there was a there was a period of British decline as a consequence of conflict, and then a very big uncertain period while the new top dog was essentially selected via force. And then ultimately kind of the most natural pick, the United States, rose because it was just not party to the actual physical conflicts that were breaking out at the time and could just have this unlimitedly large space to grow in and not have to fight anyone, but a bunch of technologically backwards native people that had no hope of resisting us. So the United States rises into its place and compare us to what the British did. Compare the United States to Britain starving uh, India to, to be able to feed its own people Uh, turning an entire other continent into a prison colony, uh, addicting all of China to opiates so they can get beneficial trade deals. These guys were monsters who were going from place to place, starving, killing, or addicting to opiates, everyone they came across in order to make a buck. Like the number, like the big dub the British had in, in, in their back pocket was that they ended... Uh, the slave trade, right? Like that was the yep. that was the one major positive thing they did. So they got rid of slavery, but instead they're going to slave you to the pipe <laughs> and then take all your silver. <laughs> like not a bunch of good guys, right? Like not exactly uh, great citizens of the globe. The United States, by comparison, are God's most precious creatures. We have moved in to the areas where we have Susan Tree. And said, hey, guys, what if you guys, like, maybe got cut in on the profits here a little bit? And the standard of living here just went up, like, tenfold? Wouldn't cost us a whole lot. You you would make a lot of money. We would make a lot of money. And we're all good. And we just all accept this new new way of life. Like, are you going to ever be rich as me? No. But you're going to be way richer than you are now. Isn't that good? What an amazing deal we have given the globe. 
I have to push back here because you know. Oh, yes, good. There, I finally got there. You you know that there's there's a lot of skepticism left in me. Uh, we we did assassinate a lot of people in Central America and South America so that they would continue to produce cheap bananas for us. Uh, the the natives there aren't as many of them left as one would hope. They they got they got genocided at least as hard as. The British never genocide anyone. Middle East, we don't have a great record there. We have we we bombed a lot of people for very little profit. Uh, so so we're not. I don't know. I'm I'm with you a lot of the way in terms of best ever and uh, big fan of comparing to next best alternative instead of some hypothetical utopia. But I, I need you to come down a half a step. <laughs> I, I I'm actually very um. I, this might be the more controversial part of my take, but I'm actually pretty comfortable with the level of dirt that we have done to achieve the level of good that the U.S. has done to the globe. Yes, you're absolutely correct. And everyone is right to point out that there's lots of blood on the hands of the United States over the last, well, we'll call it, what, um, 80 years of post-war uh, peace? Hegemony? Yeah, just like, you know, the Cold War... Certainly, um, you can even kind of provide a little discount for that, right? Like assuming like, okay, so instead of fighting an actual hot war, we're going to do this kind of Cold War thing that's much less intensity. It's going to involve a lot less body bags, but, you know, there's still going to be flashpoints of violence. There's going to be wars via proxy. And this is how we're going to find duke it out because we're sort of limited now in our ability to oppose each other on the battlefield because of the existence of these, you know, ter- terrible mass destructive weapons that would destroy all life on the planet. Even discounting for that, yeah, I I would prefer if we had not assassinated people and caused human misery over cheap bananas. I would have preferred that we didn't do that. That's not a moral good. But we did a lot less bad in the name of our economic prosperity than anyone that's come before us. And I think this is important. We have realized that it was wrong to assassinate people for cheap bananas. And that is not a path that we have continued to go down as time went on. As the dirt became known, like with the whole adventure with the Shah of Iran, like everyone knows that was bad and we shouldn't, we shouldn't monkey around in the politics of other nations and basically determine their fate for them anymore. We shouldn't be fans of determinism in in national uh, identity, not oppressing it. We should be, we should be creating an atmosphere where it can grow and, and people can have their moment of self-determination. Most empires don't do that. In fact, none of them do. <laughs> Most empires don't go, you know what? We're going to stop being evil. And that, if that means we take a few L's here and there and we have to loosen our grip on some places and they do some things we don't want to do. You know, we might not be fans, we might not trade with them, but we're not going to swoop in with the CIA and kill them anymore. That's too far. Like, so when Venezuela happens, we're not going to kill Nicolas Maduro. We're not going to necessarily be his boy. We're not going to do business with the guy. We prefer he gets ousted, but we're not going to ace him ourselves anymore. That's too much. I mean, that's actually... I mean, I, I, again, I'm going to stick up for my boys in Persia. There's a lot of self determination, but I, I, otherwise, you know, I take a, I take your point. Great reviews from the Jews too. Big fans. Yes, yes. 
Rave reviews. That's stellar it. stuff in the Bible on on the Persians. Improving certainly. Uh, a lot of freedom of information has definitely helped with that. Uh, war crimes for Reagan are largely seen as a bad thing. And even if you make a Call of Duty game about it. But some of the, some of the bad is still recent. We, we sponsored a chemical weapons genocide against our allies, the Kurds. Our allies. In a lot of other situations. We just gave Saddam Hussein the ingredients for it. We knew what we were doing. We gave him the ingredients for chemical weapons and said, hey, we need you to bleed Iran, and this is the only way you can do this because your military is incompetent. So you do chemical weapons stuff because we kind of have to. And he turned around and used them against an ethnic minor- minority in his own region, and we all just kind of ooh, when we, meant, when we said never again, we didn't mean it. You know, to, to take the take down to a more serious level and take some of the comedy out of it as much as this is fun. It's moments like those where, yeah, okay, so we clearly wanted Saddam because he was an amoral, dream-crushing lunatic to use chemical weapons against Iran because we hated Iran and we felt we could use Saddam to get vengeance on what happened to the humiliation that we suffered as a consequence of the revolution there. And we didn't want to tell him to do it because we wanted plausible deniability. So we like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, gave him all the pieces and you know, basically said, if you put this puzzle together and that puzzle happens to be targeted at our hated enemies, we are certainly not going to say anything about it. And we thought we were very clever until we realized, oh, this guy's a fucking monster. And the, and when he's mad at us because we decided to not let him invade his, a, a neighbor we liked, he's decided to stick our fucking face and our own poop by taking the stuff we gave him to gas the people we were telling him he wasn't allowed to oppress. To say, yes, I can, and I'm going to use the things you gave me to do it, so there. Because I know you're not coming for me now because you would have already done it, right? And that was a lesson for us to learn to say – Okay, we can't play fast and loose with the rules like this anymore. We cannot act like the rules don't apply to us. We have to not give the 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 pieces of a chemical weapons program to a madman because he might just gas his own people. That is something he might do. He might actually do the thing we tell him to do. Maybe that's also bad. Like maybe the people of Iran don't deserve to have to to have sarin gas dumped on them or whatever. Maybe this is the lesson we learn. And I will say again, no other empire on the planet ever would have learned that lesson. And not just the British, not just the Germans, not just the French, but going back all the way into antiquity. These are not organizations that tend to have a moral code that stop doing something because they realize it was bad to do it. But we constantly are, if slowly, learning those lessons, whether it's fighting a civil war to free our own slaves after we realized that was a bad idea, whether it's instituting massive social change to try and actually put into practice equality amongst our own citizens that was there in paper but not in practice, whatever it's stop messing around in Latin America or the Middle East and trying to implement change and and force things to be the way we want for our benefit and instead let the people there actually manifest their own will and try to work with it the best we can within a larger system where they have agency. 
these these are not the behaviors of most most empires in history but there are behaviors and i think also they would not at all be the behaviors of our would be competitors for the for the pedestal we're currently on and i think that's worth worth exploring as well your your next best option for global hegemon the one that would take the reins or at least fight for them with with the most verve and vigor and, and likelihood of success is china do you think china would have any pause in fucking around in other countries' politics if they had the power to do so, to, to force change along the lines that they would want to see. Speaking of being awful to your own people. Yeah, like these are people who are castrating their own citizens and putting them in the camps and trying to uh, just disintegrate their uh, religious identity over the course of millions upon millions of people on a generational level because you know they don't believe in the idea that they should be Muslims in their country. Like that's what's happening in the Uyghurs. Then there's Hong Kong, who are ethnically aligned with the Chinese, but they just believe in being able to, you know, express an opinion. Those people just go to prison and you just never see them again. I mean, that's who empires tend to be, is they tend to be more like China. They tend to be very, very control-oriented. Maybe they're mercantile, like the British. Maybe they're more obsessed with, like, a, a sense of national identity, like the Germans. Maybe they're they're obsessed with a, a legalistic uh, and uh, and and philosophical framework like the French, but they all have a sense of top down control, my way or the gallows sensibility. And in the United States, a unique among things like an empire have have chosen not to do that, particularly since basically nineteen ninety one. And, and that's you can take you can seriously contrast. You brought up the first Gulf War. Uh, you can imagine the old phrase "Rome conquered the world in self-defense." That was exactly the kind of casus belli that Rome would use to go just conquer their neighbors outright. And there are some who thought we should have toppled today, Saddam Hussein. But even toppling it was never. We should expand and conquer this. So that we have more territory and more people to tax farm, that that and that's just such a sharp contrast with what Rome would have done, which is, oh, you attacked one of our allies and you're weaker than us. We own you now, and we'll probably kill a good portion of your citizens on the way in. Yeah, we don't really have much care for your lives at all. This is us controlling our prosperity through your suffering, and. If you look at the client states of the United States, which is most of Western and Eastern Europe at this point, um, Japan, uh, Australia, really you know, just the NATO countries plus the Pacific Rim countries, I guess, is, sure. is what you'd call the client states of, the, of, of America. We have maximally incentivized their personal prosperity and the power of their countries to, to cater to their population, to our personal detriment. Like the defense of all of these places, it's outsourced to the American taxpayer. I don't think that can be overemphasized. France, Great Britain, Spain, Germany, Italy, Greece, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, None of these places 
invest a fraction of the G of their GDP uh, towards defense in, in the way that the United States does. Like they're, they can't even possibly compete with, with the proportion of their national spending that goes towards defense. Not talking about absolute numbers. I'm talking about the percentage of what they generate. And they can do that because we have decided to take the burden upon ourselves to control the defense infrastructure and pay for it and say, we got it covered. You can spend all your money on all of your socialist nonsense and make it so that everyone's got healthcare, you know, from cradle to the grave, whatever you want. You can do what you want. They have whatever social network uh, support system you want to pay for instead. If that's what you want to do, you can have French people working 28 hours a week and whatever, like fine, fine. We we'll technically pay. ask for 2% of their GDP, but then when they don't do it, we don't do anything. Right. <laughs> and uh, can you think of an, another empire on this planet whose client states would be undertaxed? Even late, uh, even into the 20th century, Britain was calling on client states to come send people to the trenches for them. Yes. We would yeah. never do that. Yeah, we, if we went to war for our client states, it would be we do the vast majority of the heavy lifting and they also contribute on the margins and then we would win the war for them. And that's that's unprecedented. Yeah, there, there's no other empire that would indebt itself that would cause suffering onto themselves for the protection of their client states on a, not just a, on an individual conflict basis, but on an ongoing basis to pay for their defense. All in just an exchange for you to trade with us, not trade in an advantageous way. We're, we're, we're not like raking you over the coals or getting like, you know, extracting all of your resources or anything like that. No, maybe we want to have like a little bit of a deal. Like we can get access to you first and maybe we'll have kind of a privileged position, but we're still going to pay fair price for everything and you're going to pay us fair price for everything we're not we're not going to like try and get one over on you to such a degree that it's going to really hurt you economically we raked south america over the coals pretty hard like we don't we don't pay a lot for coffee beans and bananas those that's that was even when there were some uh democratically elected uh, people who just wanted to fix some of the trade arrangements we CIA'd them a little bit. But for, yeah, and you're right, that should not have happened, right? And we've stopped doing it. I mean, yeah. there's we you are correct. That should not have occurred. But I think the important lesson is, oh yeah, we should stop oppressing you and treating you like our farm for all of our luxury goods. Our bad. We'll we will we will treat you differently now. <laughs> it's good. There is this current with the current Ukraine war. Um of blaming NATO expansion and the, as if NATO is this empire and we are adding to it, our empire is expanding. And it seems to me that the crucial distinction is that countries apply to join NATO. They, they, they join voluntarily. They can leave if they wanted to like, no, nobody's keeping Poland in NATO, but the Polish who, not coincidentally, are big fans of the U.S. <laughs> and Ukraine wanted to join NATO because Russia had invaded it previously and had a long history of invading Ukraine and 
other Eastern European countries. And the best way to not get invaded is to seek the shelter of the U.S. nuclear umbrella. That is the least imperial thing you can imagine. That is other countries wanting to join us voluntarily and with full right of exit. And it's not just for military security, for access to common markets like the EU. I'm still a big fan of NAFTA. I might be the last one alive. Uh, but Yes, you are. Yes, I am. But access to global markets and American security is something that other countries actively seek. And if there is such a thing as a utopia that is possible, it looks a lot like a global security umbrella that brings everybody under an EU-like war between these states is unthinkable. And access to global markets is worth more than the value of conquering your neighbors. I mean, this was something we discussed in one of our prior episodes, which was the idea of a concert of Europe. Spirit of Helsinki is why it is. They were trying to build that with Russia, trying to to, to buy them into like your access to global markets is more important than your, your desire to conquer territory, right? So there are limits to that. But your point about how NATO as a sort of manifestation of American power and will, which I think it is adequately described as being something people actively wish to join with all of their sovereignty completely intact, but now are, are merely protected from being oppressed by others essentially. And that is, that is our imperial power is just, you get to not get taken over by a more powerful neighbor that might be able to just do so as a consequence of population or technological innovation or both. So if you're Estonia, this is the greatest deal on the planet. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think you can put it better than how you put it is to NATO and applying into it is. Moral legitimacy. We're largely in agreement that American empire is a moral good, certainly relative to anything that's ever existed or would presently replace it if it didn't exist. So the argument about America's moral turpitude is rooted is rooted in an ahistorical analysis, which is our problem with it. It is, oh, there are individual bad things that America is responsible for. Ergo, it is evil and wrong. Ergo, it must be destroyed. And that analysis is absent both current day context as to what are your other fucking options B rejects the idea that somehow there would be another option. Like somehow, you know, joy and prosperity would break out if there was just no global hegemon and C no acceptance whatsoever of, I would call it the human condition that people are always going to do bad things and restraining that impulse is actually what makes the United States something extremely special. Is that we have now, this is the first post-Enlightenment empire, you know, like this is the one that's really trying to seize upon those ideas and manifest them into the world in a practical way. So what, so we are in agreement that analysis is flawed. We've gone through the reasons why the analysis is flawed. What do we do when we're confronted with this? Like, what's the answer to this? 
because the takes aren't going away. The, the, the push towards delegitimizing the American empire is not ending anytime soon. Okay. So, so what do we do then? How do we reclaim to the extent possible the legitimacy of American empire as the correct course for history? Step zero, Google motto. Don't be evil. Okay, fair, fair. Do your best to follow that one. Seems strong. Uh, it's, it, I think about this a lot as someone who barely remembers 9-11. My image of America for a long time was kind of that meme about how uh, Republicans are the drone and Democrats are the drone with BLM stickers on it. Yes. It's like, we're just... We just we just did Iraq. Uh, France didn't. All of our allies didn't want us to. We just we just invaded. Why are we doing this? this? None of this makes sense. And without a sense of here are relevant alternatives, either historically or with China as a global hegemon, it was hey, America. It it was unthinkable for a lot of people my age until about a year ago, that American military power could be used to positive some ends. That there, are, there, there could be positive results from American military force. It wasn't unthinkable to people in Poland or people in Taiwan, but for us, history had ended. It was just the first world, the second world is China, and the third world that we were beating up and oppressing, and for people with a less positive some view of trade, they're more likely to think, oh, we're rich, they're poor, it must be maybe because trade is unfair to them and not they are poorer than they were, they're less poor than they were 10 years ago, and that is a positive development, even though they're still poorer than us. I think your point about we reached the end of history and now we have generations of people who have lived in nothing but the absolute comfort that comes with with a empire so galactically powerful it cannot be defeated except if it chooses to decline, which I think is a kind of an area you intend to get into when we get into your topic. But the the fact that we are multiple generations now separated from anything resembling a circumstance where the United States isn't the most powerful nation on the planet is it's probably a, a problem without a solution, really. Like, how do you convince a, a, an 18 year old who's going into college and starting to unlock their awareness of the world, whose father, grandfather, and great grandfather likely never suffered a day in their lives in a genuine fashion, certainly never had to concern themselves with the existence of their country or, or, or being subject to a draft or, or falling in battle. Right. They didn't have to spend five years in a trench. Right. Like you're, you're getting to the point where even Vietnam is going to be out of living memory, which is kind of crazy to think about like, yeah, some people are always going to hold on. There's still some world war two veterans out there, you know, precious few left, but they're, you know, probably centurions for the most part. Um, but it, the, the Vietnam era is dying out in front of us as well. 
I mean, and that wasn't good for American legitimacy either. Like we, we kind of had a high, it took a while to recover after Vietnam. It was like right. one we lost two, we had to napalm the village to save it, which was not a compelling argument. No, but uh, again, napalm was bad because it was a unique te- technology, but that was nothing compared to what the Romans would do to someone who who had defied them. Romans would destroy an entire village because they thought about joining Vercingetorix. And I think that's the answer to your question, is historical awareness of what empire used to look like. And as people get older, you have to teach them a harder level of history than here are the names, here are the dates. You have to give them a sense of Dan Carlin-esque, this is what this would have been like to live through. This is how horrible everything used to be. And as Jonah Goldberg likes to say, the essence of conservatism is gratitude. You, you appreciate that war used to be incredibly common that you used to just, if your neighbor was weak, you just conquered them. You can't imagine the U S just conquering Canada because our military is bigger. You, you get, you really impute people with a sense of this is how horrible it used to be. Your existence depended on spending on what we now call defense, but what used to be the entire business of the state was the the state existed to have a military to protect you from your neighbors. And if you didn't, it wasn't, oh, America might chide you for not meeting your defense obligations. It was your people were exterminated and enslaved and sent off to distant lands. All the men are killed. All the women and children are raped and sold as slaves. Well, on that happy note, Andrew, what did you want to talk about? Uh, I wanted to talk about American declensionism. Because on the right and the left, there is a widespread narrative of things are getting worse. Uh, And the classic example of this is the polling that's the country is on the wrong track. Most people agree. My life is going okay. The vast majority of people agree. This constant disparity uh, explains a lot about the current moment that so many of our problems are fundamentally problems of a wealthy society and not problems of a poor and declining society. We talked last week about how housing is absurdly expensive. One of the reasons it's so expensive is because our people are really productive. When your people are really productive, there's a lot of graft and a lot of resources to be captured by people who want to capture them. So it's really easy to set up this recurring uh, $10 subscription that people don't use because people aren't poor enough to care about $10 regularly leaving their bank accounts. Uh, how, so all of the problems that our politics are about, so many of them are not existential threats, which is kind of unique in history. Mm-hmm. 
to have so many problems and none of them are existential. Climate existential in the sense of your personal safety. And, and to the extent where that's starting to bleed through would be like crime politics, I guess. That sure. Seeing a bit of a resurgence, but it's very heavily localized. Like but I wasn't even thinking on an individual level. I was thinking about on a societal level. None of the problems that we're facing can defeat the United States of America. China true. can't do it. True. Absolutely not. And it's worth emphasizing too, just briefly, in case you're unaware of this fact, dear listener. The United States military is so galactically more advanced than any of its near peers that calling them a near peer is actually kind of an insult to the United States. Um, do not be fooled by any hype you see written by some some jabroni at the Rand Corporation trying to tell you that somehow China is going to defeat the U.S. military in some fashion. That is patently untrue. The, the United States has a military that's not only more technologically advanced by an order of magnitude and more materially capable by an order of magnitude. But, and I think this is very important. The United States is the only military of scale that has conducted global war fighting operations over the last 40 years. No one else has practice fighting a war at all aside from ourselves. And now, unfortunately for the people of Ukraine, Ukraine, and of course, Russia, but that's it. We and have the IDF. Yeah, the, the IDF. But we've monopolized global warfare. <laughs> We're the only ones good at it. So, like China, you know, they can build up their military. They can develop, you know, new weapons, new systems, try to reform things, build new planes, build aircraft carriers, and all of that might be like forty years behind where they are. But they're trying to catch up. They're trying to do things. But you know what? China's never done fired a fucking shot in anger. <laughs> Ever, <laughs> not since the not since the end of their revolution, have they fired a shot in anger? They have no concept of how to fight a modern war. Because there's, it's, it's much different to do so in war college than it is in real life. There's a comment on Reddit that has stuck with me for a long time. It was a thread of veterans of Reddit. How do you feel about when someone says thank you for your service? And the veteran responded. I always feel a little guilty because I didn't do anything real. I just sat behind a desk job and worked on logistics. What a shocking statement. First of all, logistics wins wars. Full stop. It does. Second of all, nobody does logistics like the U.S. And that might be our biggest edge. Well, second biggest. Our, our technology is also just decades ahead of everyone else. But it is very common when our soldiers deploy for them to immediately gain weight because they're eating so many high calorie meals because we're just giving them calories because they're carrying packs around and doing all active duty stuff. Think about how much envy Julius Caesar would have for <laughs> my soldiers gain too much weight while we're in the middle of fighting. <laughs> All of my legionnaires, they're just getting too fat for their armor. Our supplies are too good. Our supplies are too good. We have too many swords. I have so many swords. I have to destroy my extra swords so that my swords don't fall into the hands of the Huns. You know, like, that. that's where, that's where we're at. 
Our generals so- keep asking Congress to turn down our level of tank productions because we don't need as many as we're making. They're just made as a kind of graft for the the congressional districts that they're in. But we have too many swords. Yeah, and and this is this is no small problem in arms dealing, right? Like, you know, if we we literally are. When we move into a place, we leave everything behind because it's too expensive to ship it out. You know, like all of that material we left in Afghanistan, obviously we intended it to be used by the government that we had installed, but we were going to leave it there no matter what. We weren't taking it back. We don't want them. They're yours now. We, we don't want to spend the money to take all this stuff back. In, enjoy, boys. Like, <laughs> you see this also in, 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 Ukraine too, so I won't go too far into that because this is your topic. But all all that to say, yes, you are correct. There are no existential existential threats to the United States. There is impossible for there to be an existential threat to the United States. Literally, we're so powerful. If there was global thermonuclear war, we would win. Something else people don't understand. We would actually win. So yeah, all of our problems are 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 essentially self imposed. Uh. Because we're so rich, we have no other way of creating conflict for ourselves. And because we use the term, I want to clarify that by existential risk, we're talking about classical sense of kind of foreign policy, other countries, uh, glass or hard woven shoes up the stairs, glass slippers down. The American empire is decadent and in decline. You're not referring to things like asteroids and AI that yeah sure uh, right those are also called existential risk I just wanted to clarify because the singularity is still going to get us all it's fine right it, that's all that's all an entirely different topic <laughs> but the the glass slippers de- descending the staircase of history we ha- we have passed our peak and are now declining we're too rich we're we're so rich. That we're just, we have so much room, should we get poorer, to, to tighten our belts. As, as a society, there are certainly people who are on the edge, but a lot of the people that are on the edge are also, you know, there's people who make six figures and live paycheck to paycheck because they're rich enough to afford to. In a, in a very <laughs> astonishing, real statement. astonishing statement you made, but very true. Conservatives will also will often like ascribe this as a moral failing, but it's really just. I know I can have a six figure job tomorrow if I felt like it, so I don't need to save or husband my resources as dearly as someone in the past would, because I have just endless amounts of credit that I could tap into should an emergency arrive. And it might be uncomfortable for me, but I'll be fine. I don't like saving is a not saving is a luxury that I have because I make six figures and have an in-demand job. Yeah. The, the, the decline narrative is focused, I think on questions of, morality in part and a sort of philosophical yeah let's let's call it that instead i think that the decline narrative on both sides depending on whatever side you're talking to is more about a philosophical decline 
about if you're on the left that that America's promise that it's all hype, it's all BS. We're all we're just another in the series of bloody empires through history, and we have no more right to that throne than anyone else that came before it. Howard is my personality. And in this way, they find like a purpose in their life for struggle. And that's what I think a lot of this is. Because when, since we don't have an existential threat, we don't have to worry about suiting up to, to fight someone trying to kill us. We have to find something else to struggle against, right? And if you're on the political left and adopt this concept, it's because of of those parameters. And if you're on the political right and you have the decline narrative, it's... You know, we're we're falling into a period of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's got a real religious intention to it. Um, you know, the change in in sexual mores is uh, deeply negative. Um, the decline of traditional family construction and values is causing an existential decay. And we find our struggle in combating against those forces. Yep. Because again, I've got nothing else to do with this desperate desire to have conflict and and achieve victory through conflict i've said it before but uh in a previous episode there is a fixed amount of caring about external threats that has to get distributed among a certain number of topics so whatever's there will kind of absorb the flowing water of of culture war i I, this is this is my topic so i get to do this there is specifically one area where I get a little bit declensionist, and that is specifically education. And I don't want to blow too much out of a few specific stories, but data is hard to find in education. But there is definitely a trend of flattening the distribution. And like in in Virginia, one of the things that got governor, please help, Glenn Youngkin, elected was there. They were removing accelerated programs because they were bad for equity. They 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 lead to unequal outcomes. And if we start removing the best and brightest from areas where the best and brightest can excel. That is an area where you start to fall behind in a significant way. And I hate that, that phrase of fall behind because we're already so far ahead. I mean, you start to decelerate in your advantage, I guess is the way to put it. But at the same time, I agree with your concern there. I think education in the United States is a hot mess. You know, it's a consequence of the educational field tending to attract lowest common denominator people and maybe that's a topic for another day but education because it's a a field where it's very low paying and tends to be very uh, feel very custodial um, you're not getting people to go into education who are high achievers you're not getting people who are excellent educators to teach at public schools you're getting the people the people who have that that ability to be excellent at something like that have learned to focus that energy in developing some sort of ability or competency that is economically fruitful for them. And that's not teaching at high school. 
that maybe didn't used to be the case prior to the internet era because economics was more local and and people weren't as mobile and information was more difficult to come by. So educators tended to sometimes be more highly specialized because it was just a field that was almost inherited. Uh, But now it's filtered down to a class of people who are otherwise not useful, but also are very overeducated themselves. And that doesn't breed a circumstance where they want exceptional people to achieve exceptional things because it reminds them of their own inability to do the same. That makes sense. Um, If you want to make six figures and you say, I'm just willing to put in a billion hours and really make sure I hone my craft. If you want a very aggressive pay scale, because you're just going to go above and beyond you, you go into sales. Like that is you're paid on or finance or finance. Yeah. Any kind of quant, any kind of quant field, honestly, like but I'm referring to that, like that risk that you take on of my paycheck might suck if I'm bad at my job it, it, or it might like, I'm contrasting the, the distribution from, you know, in, in education, they're all concentrated. Like you don't get rewarded for standing out except to the extent that you internalize your students being thankful for your teaching. You right. Know, like the, the payouts are very flat. Whereas something like sales, if you aren't good at it, you'll just go do something else because you don't, you don't get paid. So you don't stick around. Right. And you see this in government service too. Public services is fraught with people who are doing the minimum because it's essentially as rewarding as doing the maximum. And the education is almost the worst version of that impulse. But I, I don't want to go stray too far from from the topic here. Um, the I, I agree that there is a bit of slowing down of our advantage in education because of these ex, external issues. But because we're a creedal nation and not a ethnically homogeneous nation, i.e. the only one like that on the planet – uh, we get to attract the greatest and brightest from other places because they just want to come to the place where they can achieve their their economic aims and their economic goals. And so they show up. And since we have a system that invites them and then purposefully integrates them into our, our creed, suddenly our economic disadvantage domestically is very easily taken up by importing talent that then becomes American. Which I think cannot – that kind of advantage is impossible to replicate, right? Like oh, you can't yeah. – no matter – like Japan is a perfect example of a country that seems like it should be so much more powerful than it is, particularly economically, but just isn't. And it isn't for small to large reasons, but the, no, the number one with a bullet is they will not accept immigrants. They're just – they don't want foreigners in their country. They, they want, I take it back. They want foreigners to show up and see their country and spend a bunch of tourist dollars and then get the fuck out. All right. They don't want them sticking around. When you close yourself off in this fashion, you don't want anyone else to be part of your team. Then the, the kind of the, the, all of this suddenly becomes much more, all of these factors we're talking about suddenly become much more urgent. Like suddenly your educational system is the only thing that matters. Suddenly your domestic economic productivity is the only thing that matters because you have left yourself with no other fucking game in town. 
You cannot go out and get buy help or bring in help or import help in some fashion, even in a limited way. You've done that to yourself. You are absolutely singing my song. I mean, we talk about Sergey Brin, uh, immigrant, uh, one of the uh, Moderna founded by like a Turkish vaccine scientist or a Turkish medical doctor. Uh, the, the stories of immigrants founding awesome technology companies and Skyline also- Chile. Skyline Chile. Yes. The most and, important, important Greek import there's ever been. And also just being excellent uh, employees. And I, I'm a uh, data scientist and it is a non-trivial skill to uh, understand an, in- an Indian accent in-, in the field of data science, because India just, just churns them out uh, and we're happy to hire them into our company, into our companies. And and I think this adds to your point about how impossible it seems for America to decline. Because even our biggest weakness, the one that you first identify as like a place where we are certainly no longer achieving at a level that would allow us to stay ahead at the same rate. We have an inborn special advantage to make up for by sniping the best talent from across the sea and then making them part of our team. Like this insidiously like, Hey, you like this? You like freedom? you like being able to do anything you want. You want to own a house? You want to own two? You can do that here. We don't give a fuck. (laughs) You want to settle down? You want to get married? You want to have live your life exactly the way you want and no one ever to tell you otherwise. You want to be able to speak your mind and have an opinion about whatever you want in whatever way you want to. And the state will never show up at your door and tell you that you're not allowed to. Can't do that in Britain. Well, it can't do that anywhere and literally anywhere. There is no country on this planet where all these rules are exist in this way. And it's infectious, man. You hear it from everyone who visits who are like, oh, God, America's awesome. <laughs> like, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's wild. Like you've said before, we're more of a rich Latin American country than we are like a European country. You know, we've got a we've got an edge to us. We do have a lot of crime. But that's what happens when you have a high level of freedom. When you when you grant people the opportunity to have unlimited access to firearms. Uh, you know, you you are inviting people to decide to avail themselves of that opportunity in a way that is potentially negative. But the cost of that is a society that where you feel like you have actually total ownership and freedom to defend yourself in a way that you would never dream of anywhere else. Oh, you've sent me, uh, you sent me something. Oh, yes. I have sent you a gif of uh, the hurricane the, man, yes. The hurricane flag guy, because I feel like that's perfectly emblematic of this podcast that we have recorded today. Uh, and I did my best to push back, but unfortunately, I I am compelled to to join you outside in a hurricane, waving a flag. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I, I, if we're going to leave our audience with a final note on our pro-America flag-waving adventure this week, it is, it is not that we are not 100% aware of America's failings, 
the dirt that it's done, the dirt that it will do, the terrible moral sins that it's committed. But we're trying to tell you, guys, it's not that big a fucking deal. Did did you did you see what the French did as they rampaged across Europe? They just made new states. They're like they Napoleon just put his family members in charge. It's like you're the king of this place now, Joseph. What? Really? Yes. Would you like to be the king of Spain? No, too bad. You are. Or, or look what Russia is doing now. Or what the Chinese Imagine life for the average Taiwanese should China come in and impose their will. I'd rather I would rather be in Iraq in 2005 than in Taiwan in 2024 should the Chinese occupy it next year. Not close. On that note, something that is definitely above replacement level is the United States. And if that's not the kind of take that you want, you should definitely unsubscribe to this podcast because it's only downhill from here. And we'll see you next week. Bye.